Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It's fake news is becoming a mantra. And that, in some ways, is, is the real danger here that, that we are getting into, where we simply are going to struggle to believe what we see, hear, and read online. And I don't know how you have a democracy in that situation. That's Hani Farid. He's a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and an expert in digital forensics. Farid stumbled onto the field of computer science while he was in college and quickly rose to be one of the leading analysts tackling the tricky world of image, audio, and video manipulation. In the last few years, a new iteration of this fakery has come onto the scene. You might recognize the term, deep fakes, which refers to a computerized algorithm that can make people say and do things that they've never actually said or done. Well, that's why Farid joins me, to get into the nitty-gritty of this terrifying tech. We also talk about how to get trusted information, whether Congress will place checks and balances on social media companies, and the rising power of plausible deniability. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hi, Preet. This is Robin Friedman from the Chicago area. There's been speculation that the government chose not to continue the prosecution of Andrew McCabe because a grand jury declined to indict him. Doesn't it seem likely in this day and age that if a grand jury had been convened, the fact of its existence would have leaked in a more definitive way? What are the legal restrictions on a grand juror, both during the pendency of any proceeding and after its conclusion, to disclose the fact that they sat on a grand jury the identity of the accused, and the decision reached by the grand jury. Thanks. My week isn't complete until I've listened to your show. Bye-bye. Hey, Robin, thanks for your question. So there's been a lot of speculation in the last few months about whether or not the former deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, was going to be charged by the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And although you talk about whether or not there should have been or could have been a more definitive leak, the fact that there has been some reporting that prosecutors went to a sitting grand jury to seek an indictment of Andrew McCabe, and that they rejected the indictment, that's still a pretty extraordinary thing. There are very strict grand jury secrecy rules. They are governed by something that's called Rule 6E that you might have heard of from time to time because it gets litigated a bit. And grand jurors are absolutely barred from talking about the proceedings that take place. 
They can't talk about the testimony they heard. They can't talk about the ways in which they voted. I don't know that anything prevents them from disclosing the fact that they were on a grand jury. In fact, you have to be able to do that because if you don't show up for work for six months, you know, people are going to get suspicious. You know, what happened to Robin from Chicago? So the fact of serving on a grand jury, fine. Everything that goes on in the grand jury, not fine. That also applies to assistant U.S. attorneys and law enforcement agents who go into the grand jury. The one party that it does not apply to are witnesses who appear in the grand jury. They can go in the grand jury and talk about what they said in the grand jury. And that's why you sometimes get leaks of information about what did or did not happen. And maybe that's one of the reasons we know about it here. But it's still an extraordinary thing, A, for it to leak out that an indictment may have been presented, B, that it was rejected, and C, the fact of a rejection in and of itself, as we've discussed before, is a very, very unusual thing and probably is the reason not to pursue uh, a second shot at Andrew McCabe. Hi, Preet. This is Peter from Natick, Massachusetts. Could you please explain the decision by the D.C. Court of Appeals that it does not have jurisdiction over the McGon subpoena from the House of Representatives? And how is that possibly consistent with things like the decision in U.S. v. Nixon and everything having to do with congressional oversight. Thanks very much. I've uh, been a listener since your very first podcast uh, and intend to continue to be. Thanks very much. Bye. Peter, thanks for your question. Lots of people have been talking about this decision from the D.C. Court of Appeals that basically says the court is going to sidestep the question of whether or not Don McGahn, former White House counsel, can be compelled to testify based on an inquiry undertaken by the House of Representatives. And Milgram and I actually talk about this at some length on the Cafe Insider podcast and go into the details of the opinion, but let me give a shortened version here. It was a 2-1 decision, so there's a very striking and strident dissent from the case by Judge Judith Rogers, but the majority opinion basically says, look, when there is a dispute of a significant nature between the other two branches of government, the executive and the legislature, and it doesn't involve harm outside of those two branches of government, that's something for them to resolve on their own. And Congress has various authorities like spending power and other public pressure mechanisms and tactics that they can apply to get the testimony that they want, and so we're not going to decide the question and let the status quo stand under a doctrine that is commonly known as the political question doctrine. It's politics. It's not for the courts. It's not for us to play mommy and decide between the two parties. So we are going to stay out of it. That, of course, has some logic. But historically, there is a period of negotiation and compromise between the legislative branch, the Congress, and the executive branch when they're seeking information in connection with oversight responsibilities. And I was involved in that from time to time during my four and a half years in the Senate. And because there's a possibility down the line that the court is going to resolve it in favor of the Congress or not in favor of the Congress, both parties have some incentive to negotiate and compromise. That's what happened in the U.S. Attorney Firings investigation that I helped to lead back in 2007. That's what's happened in other investigations, too. This decision in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals seems to take away that possibility and take away all incentive for the executive branch ever to comply with anything, it seems. And that is the foundation for the criticism put forward by Judge Judith Rogers in the dissent. She basically says, look, there's always some kind of negotiation and compromise. If we say as an automatic matter that things like this are a political question and we're not going to get involved, any administration can decide we're just going to be scorched earth opposed to any kind of service of process. We're not going to participate at all. We're just going to blow it off completely and they can get away with it. My view and the view of a lot of other folks is that's not a good position to be in. The likelihood is it will not end with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It will go to the Supreme Court. And as someone is fond of saying, we'll see what happens. This next question comes from Twitter user at Trinir, who says, At Preet Bharara, 
with Trump's libel suit against the New York Times, do they now have the right to discovery? Hashtag AskPreet, hashtag stay tuned. So you're referring to this lawsuit brought by the Trump campaign against the New York Times, which is rare, as Ann and I also discussed on the Cafe Insider podcast. Trump often threatens to sue. That's true with respect to news publications. That's true with respect to people who have accused him of sexual assault. He usually does not make good on that threat. He yells a lot. He tweets a bit about it. In this case, he has filed suit. In fact, since the time of your tweet, I believe, the campaign has also sued the Washington Post. And in all of these cases, both the Washington Post and the New York Times, the campaign has sued on the basis of what it calls a defamatory piece in their papers. And all of these pieces have been opinion pieces. So before I get to your question about discovery, let me just quickly address the merits of the claim. Generally speaking, opinion made in good faith that doesn't rely on you know, known and knowable false facts, but opinion, especially about people who are in the public eye, public figures, that's fair game. That's what the First Amendment is all about. That's what it's meant to protect. And by my reading and by the reading of almost every expert, the things on, on which Trump seeks recovery, both with the New York Times and the Washington Post, are the kind of normal in the heartland of opinion kinds of pieces that don't lend themselves to a libel suit. In fact, that's not just people who oppose Donald Trump saying that. That's people on the right as well. Ann and I talked about a piece by Andrew McCarthy at the National Review Online who says there's absolutely no merit to this lawsuit, whatever. And so that's relevant to your question about discovery. Ordinarily, when you have a lawsuit that's utterly lacking in merit, the defendant, in this case the New York Times and also the Washington Post, will make a motion to dismiss. So that is before discovery. The thrust of which is, in a motion to dismiss, that even if we assume all the allegations in the complaint are true, even if we assume that all the things you're saying are correct, if there's still no basis to bring a lawsuit, then we dismiss the case and no discovery. It's only after that point that discovery takes place. And discovery, of course, is the exchange of documents and the taking of depositions. And sometimes, and maybe this is the spirit in which you're asking the question, it is something that is not to the benefit of the person filing the lawsuit. The plaintiff subjects himself, in this case Trump, to discovery and depositions and question asking, and sometimes it can be bad for him. I think that the case is so meritless that we'll never get there, but let me say this for the second time today. We'll see what happens. So I'm recording this mid-morning, Wednesday, March 4th, the day after Super Tuesday. Long-awaited 14 states went to the polls to decide who might be the Democratic nominee. And the one thing that's clear from Super Tuesday, no matter whose side you're on, elections are not so predictable. So there's been a bit of good-natured and sometimes not so good-natured ribbing on Twitter of people who made strong predictions about what would happen on Super Tuesday. And that happens every election cycle. It happened in 2016 with respect to Donald Trump. And so last week, Hugh Hewitt, noted conservative commentator, who said he was going to vote for Bernie Sanders himself in, I think, a gambit and a ploy to make him the nominee because he views him to be easier to defeat by Donald Trump. Whether that's true or not, I don't have a view. And Hugh Hewitt, tweeted about an op-ed that he had written in which he said, of course, Joe Biden is taking a victory lap. This is after South Carolina. Of course, Joe Biden is taking a victory lap, but it's not going to stop his losing Super Tuesday, to which I responded, LOL. And Twitter user Jim Driscoll poses this question in his tweet in response to my tweet that said, LOL. And Jim Driscoll asks, has he ever been right? Hashtag AskPreet. You know what? People who speak for a living about politics and write for a living about politics, like Hugh Hewitt. They make mistakes sometimes, they get things right sometimes. I think what's more important than sort of dunking on people like Hugh Hewitt is to realize that all of us are fallible, that we have to be careful about making predictions of any sort whatsoever. And I'll point you to another tweet that I sent last night, quoting the best screenwriter of all time, William Goldman, who very famously said in a book relating to screenwriting in Hollywood and predicting box office success, 
He said, nobody knows anything. That could apply to Hollywood and predictions about blockbuster success, but it also can apply to political pundits. I'm guilty of it sometimes myself. I try to not make many predictions lately because I tend to be wrong. My predictions tend to be in the area of what's going to happen with respect to legal cases or pardons or that kind of thing. And I've been wrong a bunch recently. But when it comes to elections, the reason it's important for everyone to appreciate that nobody knows anything and that surprises can happen and that unforeseen events can take place and that long shot candidacies can win is that your vote counts and you must go vote. Don't let folks in the media, don't let the sort of professional paid pundits tell you who's going to win and who's not, what matters and what doesn't. And especially don't let Twitter do that for you. Barack Obama's candidacy was one considered an impossibility. Bernie Sanders' candidacy was one considered an impossibility, and it has thrived. Same is true for Pete Buttigieg. He didn't get there, but boy, he got a lot farther than people thought. Andrew Yang, same thing. And a number of the people I just described may still become the president in the future. And of course, the mother of all bad predictions, the Donald Trump victory in 2016. Anything can happen. There are a lot of people saying five days ago, Joe Biden's candidacy was dead. Many of those same people are now saying that Joe Biden's nomination is all but assured. Neither of those things are true. There's still a lot of states that have to vote. Things could yet change. And I'll repeat what I've seen, I think, wisely people have said on social media and on the airwaves for a while. Vote for the candidate you believe in. Support the candidate you believe in. Pick the person who either aligns with your values or who you think has the best possibility of defeating the person you want to have defeated, and I'm speaking about Trump, and do it with all your heart and convince your friends and knock on doors and make phone calls. And don't let one inevitable narrative replace another inevitable narrative because there's no such thing as inevitability, at least not yet. My guest this week is Hani Farid. He's a professor and digital forensics expert working to develop the suite of tools that will help us detect deep fakes and other visual and auditory manipulations. As a heads up to our younger listeners at home, some of our discussion references explicit content as Farid's also been at the forefront of the fight to get non-consensual pornography and child pornography off the internet. In our conversation, Farid explains that the incentive to make fakes isn't new, but today's technology and social platforms exacerbate the problem. For example, we discuss how a clever deep fake could upend the election. We'll talk about the power of a shallow fake, why the democratization of information isn't always a good thing, and whether we're on the precipice of what Fareed calls a misinformation apocalypse. Plus, how Fareed became tied up in a conspiracy theory with none other than alleged Kennedy assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Professor Hani Fareed, thanks so much for being on the show. It's good to be here, Preet. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to sort of introduce the topic other than to say we're recording on Monday, March 2nd, and we thought we would take a break from the horror of the coronavirus and educate folks on yet a different horror <laughs> that is looming <laughs> in the country. And it's a thing that some folks have been hearing about, and we'll talk generally about the weaponizing of technology, which is something that you have written about and have studied and have taught about. But in particular, this thing that people are beginning to hear, deep fakes. Yeah. Now, you are a very smart guy and trained in a lot of different things. In fact, I understand that you have been called the father of digital forensics. Is that true? I have. I'm sort of grateful it's not grandfather right now, so I'll stick with father for now. I was thinking that's an odd thing to name your child, but anyway. <laughs> uh, come here, digital. Uh, can we start at the beginning on this issue? Sure. Of, so, so what is a deep fake? What is meant by the term? And then we'll get into how you do it, how you detect 
that something is fake, what the consequences are, how we should be worried, and all sorts of terrible things, but then how we're going to fix it all. What's a deep fake as the term is understood? Good. Let's, so let's start with some, some definitions. So first, let's start by acknowledging that for a long time, since the inception of photography, we have been mani- manipulating photographs and videos and audios. Typically, that has been done by a handful of very talented experts. Over the last 15 years, that has been democratized a little bit with programs like Photoshop that now allow, you know, maybe somebody with a little bit of skill to manipulate a photograph. And what's been happening over the years and the decades is we have been making the technology to manipulate digital media easier and easier to use. And today, the latest instantiation is so-called deep fakes. So what deep fakes are is a general term to describe using computerized algorithms, typically machine learning algorithms, to automatically either, for example, synthesize audio in somebody else's voice, synthesize images of people who have never existed, and things like create deep fake videos where you swap one person's face for another person's face inside of a video, or you change their mouth to be consistent with a new audio track, so it literally, you are putting words in their mouth. And the important thing here is to understand that while the creation of fake content is not new, it is this automation, the fact that we are now using automatic algorithms, you simply point the algorithms at some data, and you say, swap this person's face for this person's face, create me an image of a person who doesn't exist, synthesize President Trump saying whatever I want him to say. And it is that democratization of access to technology that I think have many of us concerned about the misinformation apocalypse that is upon us. And I, and I think it's important here. <laughs> the tough term. To, I, I know we're, we're coming off the coronavirus and we're still wrestling with that and I don't want to freak everybody out. But I, I do think that there is something bubbling up and, and it's not, you can't just blame the deep fakes because we've been now seeing this unfold for years. And it's really a trifecta, if you will. So we now have the ability to create fake content that is very convincing. We have the ability to publish that to the world through social media with essentially no filters and apparently very little oversight from the Facebooks and the YouTubes and the Twitters of the world. And the third part of that is that we have a willing consumer, that we have become so partisan both here in the U.S. and around the world, that we are simply willing to believe the absolute worst in the people that we don't like or we disagree with. And that's the perfect storm. Create disseminate, consume, amplify, rinse, repeat. And I think that's what we've been seeing over the last few years, and that's sort of the, the landscape ahead of us right now. And, and it gets, and it gets <laughs> you use the shampoo analogy, continuing that, it gets people kind of lathered up. But what's interesting, <laughs> nice. you, you use the word democratization. Mm-hmm. You used that word multiple times a minute ago, yeah. and people usually think that's a good thing. And yeah. It has positive connotations, and yet you're talking about it in the context of it being something dangerous and bad. Well, here's another good example of that. So for a long time, we thought democratization of access to publish information was largely a good thing. Give everybody, 7 billion plus people in the world, the ability to say and do anything they want online. And that seemed this sort of beautiful utopian idea. But it turns out when you do that, some pretty bad things happen because there's some bad people out there. And when we don't put checks and balances on the digital world the way we do in the offline world, well, some bad things happen. And the same is true of technologies. For a long time in computer science and technology, the thinking was develop technology and give it to the world and let's see what happens. But let me point out that if a biologist, speaking of the coronavirus, figured out how to create a deadly virus from ingredients in their kitchen, nobody would think it's a good idea for them to put that recipe online and then ask, well, let's see what happens next. 
But that's sort of what we do with technology on a routine basis. And for a long time, it's been okay. But I think now, 20 years into the modern internet that we know, we have to start thinking a little bit more carefully about how technology is being weaponized. So as you point out, the manipulation of images and moving images, videos, has been around for a long time. And in fact, it's a staple of Hollywood, right? And so this thing that we're talking about, the showing of people who are not really in the room, I think there have been some films where you have somebody who's passed away and they use digital technology to have them appear in the film for entertainment purposes and at a cost of millions of dollars, people don't seem to have a problem with that. But if everyone with a laptop can do something that is false and have it pass as real, then I guess there's a real danger of nefarious conduct. So before we get to how it's done and how fakes are detected, give us some examples of bad things that people can do. So let's talk about what people are doing today. And probably, in fact, the term deepfake comes from the Reddit handle uh, username of a guy who created the first deepfake non-consensual pornography. They took the likeness of a woman and they put it into a sexually explicit content and they distributed it online. The vast majority today of deepfake content is in that realm of non-consensual pornography. And it is yet the latest incarnation of how technology is being weaponized against women. And I think it's pretty awful. And many states around the country and at the federal level are looking to figure out how they can regulate the space because it is, I think many people, and I agree with this, is is yet another assault on women, particularly online, and it's threatening and it's awful. To understand what that is, you're saying they're not creating a video whole cloth. They're taking an existing video and they're superimposing some celebrity's face on it? And not just a celebrity, journalists, uh, people who have participated in the Me Too movement, people who just attract unwanted attention. It can be anybody because what's so interesting about this technology is it's not just you are vulnerable if you are the Scarlett Johansons of the world, but if you have your likeness on the internet, which we all do, you now are exposed and have a vulnerability, and we are seeing that type of weaponization against women. What's another example? So that's one particularly problematic and troubling issue that we're seeing. Here's another where we now start to get into some interesting landscape. So imagine I create a video of Mark Zuckerberg, of Jeff Bezos, um, saying our profits are down 10%, and I leak that on Twitter or YouTube, and that goes viral in, what, 10 seconds? How much can I manipulate the stock market? How many billions of dollars can I move the stock market before anybody figures out that it's real? And while that has not been done yet, we have the ability to create those types of videos. Um, We have seen smaller scale versions of these videos being used for fraud. But in terms of our economic security, I think there are real concerns about how information makes its way on the internet and how it can move markets to the tunes of billions of dollars. And I assume you can also affect politics in this way, too. There's a concern about, you know, certainly future elections, but maybe even this one, too. Sure, sure. So here's the nightmare situation for our democracies, which is that 24, 48 hours before election night, somebody creates a video of a candidate um, and releases it online. And before anybody figures it out, we've moved hundreds of thousands of votes. And if you don't think that matters, I will remind you that in 2016, the difference between President Trump and Hillary Clinton was 80,000 votes in three states. So when the margins are thin, You can move people very quickly. And by the way, I'll remind people, too, that Mark Zuckerberg has said, we have no problem with the campaign's lying, outright lies, as long as you pay us, and then we will allow you to micro-target those lies. So imagine it's not the Russian hackers. Imagine it's the campaign themselves that create fraudulent videos, perfectly legal. Mark Zuckerberg has no problem with it, and we are now going to micro-target Ohio and Florida and Pennsylvania and Michigan, and we are going to change an election. Okay, so, right? so these things are not widespread yet. We keep hearing 
the threat is on the horizon. So, so what is possible today? Can somebody with a few hundred dollars, or you tell us how much it costs, today create the kind of video that you're describing, or is it still only in the realm of people who have a lot of money and very sophisticated technology? So two things. One is misinformation is clearly here today. Whether it's in the form of deep fakes or not, it is here. And we have been seeing it for years, both here in the U.S., in Europe, and around the world. And so now the question is, when do we get to the next stage where we start seeing full-blown synthetic images and videos? So what we have been seeing is the use of deepfake images to create fraudulent accounts on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook to promote fake news and mis- and disinformation. So we've started to see this low-level fraud happening. I agree with you. We have not seen the full-blown video of Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, uh, Donald Trump saying something that's offensive or crazy or illegal. Um, I think most of us think that is maybe not tw- if it's not 2020, uh, 20, it's going to come down the line. But is that because people are abstaining or is that because it's, it's still too difficult to do? Could, could you actually create a video of Joe Biden saying something that would be offensive to a large segment of the population? We can and we have. Not something offensive, but we have created video in my lab of politicians saying things that they've never said. Now, so to your question, where are we? So the core code that we use to create these deep fakes, anybody can download from the internet. You go to GitHub, there's a GitHub well, repository. Well, don't tell people. I'm not going to tell you where to find. Where, <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? It's a, too late. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, don't, don't so try this you at can, home. You, you can download the code. I will say that if you try to run it right out of the can, you'll, you'll get some interesting results, but they won't be great. And they're not going to fool anybody. But if you have a little bit of skill and a little bit of computing power and you know, typically around a week or so of time, you can create a pretty compelling fake. Now, but what's important here is not where are we today, but what is the trajectory? So what we've been seeing over the last 18, 12, six months is that software is getting better and better and better. It's running faster and faster. It needs less and less data. And it is just a matter of time before it's going to be plug and play. And how much, how much that cost? Push a button. What's the cost? Um, you know, it depends on the quality of the, the video. So we, for example, have a single computer instance sitting in Amazon's cloud. And that costs us a couple thousand dollars a month to run. And that's it. If you're a little more patient and you have a high-end laptop, you can probably run that on your laptop too. So the computing is not the rate-limiting step anymore, and that is narrowing and narrowing. I think what's going to be interesting to see is, I think two things are going to be interesting. One is when and if these deepfakes really start to penetrate. Because the fact is, is that good old-fashioned fake news and fake video work. So if you saw the Speaker Pelosi video where they simply slowed it down to make her sound drunk, that wasn't a deep fake. It was what we now are calling a shallow fake. And it was really effective. Uh, It went viral online. People were outraged by it. Simple misinformation where people tweet out things that didn't happen are incredibly effective. So, but I think here's what I would argue is the larger underlying issue that is going to be difficult for us. Because whether deepfakes gets weaponized in 2020, 2022, or 2024 is sort of missing the broader point. Because as we enter a world where images and video and audio and the news stories we read can be faked, well, then nothing is real. Everybody has plausible deniability or the so-called liar's dividend. And now any politician, anybody who doesn't like an image or a video or an audio of them can say, oh, it's fake. That's an interesting point. As you say, we keep talking about the fake thing, but in the world of tomorrow, the real thing that's offensive can be disclaimed as fake. Yeah, and I'll give you, to give you a sense of how quickly the landscape has shifted, 
Let's go back to 2015, five years ago. Then-candidate Trump gets himself in a little bit of trouble for the Access Hollywood tape, where he says things that are very offensive. And what did he do? He apologized. And his campaign apologized, and they apologized, and they apologized. Does anybody today think that they would be apologizing if that audio came out? No, he would say it's fake news. You can't believe it. And not only would he say that, he would have plausible deniability. Because if you remember in that tape, you never saw him. All you did was hear the voice. And by the way, some people may have missed this, is that two years um, on in 2017, now President Trump says, oh, I think that that audio was fake. We don't have to talk about it anymore. And so that's how quickly the landscape has shifted. And I will tell you, on, on a weekly and sometimes daily basis, I get emails from people around the world saying, there's a video of me, there's an image of me, and it's fake. Um, and whether that's a court of law, whether that's just simply embarrassing, whether it's a politician in trouble, that it's fake, it's fake news is becoming a mantra. And that, in some ways, is, is the real danger here that, that we are getting into, where we simply are going to struggle to believe what we see, hear, and read online. And I don't know how you have a democracy in that situation. You mentioned the trifecta. It's interesting. The fact that you can make fake stuff, you can publish it to the world, and there's a willing consumer. Would you add to that, or do you think it's just sort of an umbrella concern that we are more susceptible these days to conspiracy theory and to fake stuff than we ever have been before, or have we always been this way? Uh, I would add that to it, and I think it's an important addition to it. And I would say it's a combination of things probably at play. And one of them that we have to take a very hard look at is the filter bubble that is social media. That the underlying business model of Facebook, of YouTube, of Twitter, of social media is to engage you on their platform. And that means that their incentives are to show you things that conform to your worldview because that's what's going to keep you clicking. And their incentive, as Mark Zuckerberg has admitted, is that sensational, outrageous, conspiratorial content engages you more. And so the algorithms that are being optimized to figure out how do we keep users on our platform for as long as possible so we can deliver ads and extract data from them are learning to keep reinforcing your previously accepted views and to give you more sensational, more conspiratorial. Now, I imagine there's other issues at play here that we are more polarized society, but you can't ignore, we can't ignore what is this filter bubble of social media where now the majority of Americans and outside of the U.S., the majority of people get the majority of their news. And that's a very troubling landscape. Yeah, I think it sounds like it's a little bit of a subset of point three in the trifecta. We have a willing consumer base because you know, people are prepared to believe almost anything. So, for example, going back to prior elections, if you had a belief because you didn't like President Obama that he had certain views or he talked a certain way you know, with his confidants or that he was from Kenya, they're going to be willing to believe manipulated images that show those things. That's right. That's exactly right. And part of that is we are more polarized, but part of that is that imagine that you get the majority of your news on Facebook and every news article keeps conforming to that narrative, right? And the micro-targeted ads by the people who don't didn't like President Obama conform to that narrative. Well, it's hard to escape from that filter bubble or that rabbit hole, as it's called. And that also is, you know, there's two issues here with the social media platforms that not only do they allow this stuff on the platform, but they're pushing it down your throat. They are not just neutral platforms. 70% of content on YouTube that is viewed is promoted by YouTube. They are telling you what to watch, watch next. 100% of material on Facebook is Facebook algorithmically telling you what to look at on your newsfeed. So these are, you know, some of the most powerful editorial pages in the world because they are doing this at the global scale, not just at the U.S. scale. You know, you mentioned a minute ago the Access Hollywood tape and the idea that real things are going to be accused of being fake. 
And that's not a new thing. There's an interesting story in your background that I was reading about over the weekend where there's a, a famous photograph, I think, of Lee Harvey Oswald, who is alleged to be the person who shot President Kennedy. And he's standing with a weapon that he claimed back then was fake. And you had some involvement in proving that it was real. Explain that. Yeah. First of all, this is a great story. So um, That's why I'm asking you about it. <laughs> yeah. The, this is actually really one of the, my, my favorite analyses that we've done for a couple of reasons. So one is that you're absolutely right. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, when shown that picture of him showing uh, holding the rifle that was the same type of rifle that was used to kill President Kennedy, he said it, it's fake, which is really amazing if you think about <laughs> pre-Photoshop to be able to say 1963. that. 1963. Now, since 1963, I'm sure most people know there have been any number of conspiracies and theories about what actually happened in the assassination of President Kennedy, up to including, you know, aliens and time travelers and the Cubans and the Russians and the FBI and the CIA. And there's a long laundry list of, of conspiracies. And one of the things that those conspiracy theorists point to is uh, purported inconsistencies in the so-called backyard photo of Lee Harvey Oswald. And for years, I was getting email from people telling me, you have to look at this image. You have to look at this image. You're going you're gonna to blow the lid off of this thing. And uh, one summer, a few years back, I got a, a particularly interesting email that was very coherent. They, they pointed to things in the image that I honestly couldn't understand. The shadows and the lighting did look odd to me. And I thought, well, this might be interesting. I set off for a few months to analyze the photo and did a very careful three-dimensional reconstruction of the scene to understand the lighting and the shadows and the size of the gun and, 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 and Oswald's stability. And we did a full-blown 3D analysis, and we found that the image is completely consistent with the expected physics of lighting and, and gravity. And everything sort of just came together very nicely. And we, we published this work, and I was very excited because I thought, guys, I've got some good news for you. You can move on from now. Right. <laughs> um, which, looking back on it, was incredibly naive because what happened is I became part of the conspiracy. So the narrative emerged as, ah, right. he is working for the FBI, he's part of the conspiracy, and this is in some ways the brilliance of conspiracies, because there's two types of data. There's the data that supports your conspiracy, and there's the data that, that doesn't, which is part of the conspiracy to cover it up. Right, so you, you can't win. And I win. became part of the latter. You can't, you can't win, win in a conspiracy theory, nope. because there's whatever no new information enters the data set, you just reject it, or you explain it away as biased. Exactly. So flat earth... September 11th didn't happen, school shootings didn't happen, the moon landing didn't happen, that long laundry list of conspiracy theories, there is no debate to be had. And, and I will say, by the way, just today we released a study, which is a 15-month study of how YouTube promotes conspiracy videos. And what we find is that at its peak in the late 2018, some 10% of promoted videos on informational channels so the CNNs, the NPRs, the New York Times of the world, were conspiratorial. And that number has gone down and has now been fluctuating between 3 and 5%. And it's been a really interesting study to see how YouTube has finally started to respond to this. But I would still argue somewhat anemically because we are still seeing, again, not just neutral hosting. They are telling you to watch these videos. And that is a very dangerous landscape when those videos say things like, uh, drink uh, bleach and you won't get the coronavirus. Right. Um, so these are not, this is a little crazy. That doesn't crazy. require any skill flat. either. Exactly. And, and not only is YouTube allowing it on the platform, they're telling people to watch this. 
And so these, you know, it's easy to sort of make fun of these conspiracies. And the fact is that some of them are incredibly dangerous. The Pizzagate conspiracy, where the guy showed up at a pizza joint in D.C. because he was convinced that Hillary Clinton was running a child pornography ring. He showed up with an AR-15 and fired shots. So what happens online doesn't stay online. It bleeds over into the real world. And that's incredibly dangerous. It seems to me, and maybe this is, tell me if this is too outlandish, that you're taking a conventional weapon that's existed for a long time in the same way firearms have existed that are very dangerous and then can do damage to an adversary or an opponent. And now you throw in very, very realistic video and sound, and you've now created something that was conventional and maybe made it more of nuclear power. I think that's exactly the right way to think about it, is that we have this existing problem of mis- and disinformation and fraud and conspiracies and harassment, and now we're injecting into that this incredibly powerful deepfake technology that is on steroids everything that we have seen before. So I think there's two things important there, is that it's not the deepfakes in and of themselves, but it's the injection of this new powerful medium. And look, let's be honest that Up until fairly recently, when you saw a video, you sort of believed it. I mean, images, we have come to sort of cast some doubt on them, all the shark videos of sharks swimming down the streets after a hurricane. But video still held this sort of sacred spot, as did audio recordings. And that is starting to go away. And so what's left now? Okay, so what I read, what I see, what I hear. There's nothing left. There's nothing left, left, right? So I have to physically be there in order to confirm, right. right? We have to touch it, right? Okay, well, you know, that's a dangerous landscape. And so, you know, now, you know, what's the answer to this? Well, I think, you know, part of the answer is the social media companies have to start getting more serious about how their platforms and services are being weaponized. And they have been too slow to do that. And then I think we as the consumer have to start thinking about how do we get trusted information? And, you know, honestly, what that means is get off of Twitter and get off of Facebook and get off of YouTube and return to our trusted sources. Like podcasts. Return to like podcasts, exactly. <laughs> how, how does the listener know right now that this is you and me talking? Good. So they don't, um, obviously. <laughs> right. um, um, at the end of the day, look, this, this whole thing can be synthesized. It would save me a lot of work. It would, but there's a difference between the incentives of you and the incentives of somebody on YouTube who's trying to drive advertising dollars, right? Your credibility matters down the line. Maybe you can get away with it once, maybe twice. But your credibility as a journalist and as a serious thinker and as somebody who does podcasts is that your audience has to trust you. And that's important. And that's true of most mainstream outlets. And so that exchange that we have is what sort of keeps us honest in this conversation right now. And the same cannot be said of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, where you are rewarded the more outrageous you are because that's what drives activity and that's what drives advertising dollars. With respect to what people believe, you've said based on human psychology, that people are deeply visual beings. And that's been true forever. And there are jokes that people say, like, who are you going to believe, you know, me or your lying eyes? Right. And that may be changing. Let me ask you this question. What, what is harder to do, a deep fake with respect to video of a person or audio? It's a great question. Um, the answer is it depends. Um, so with the video, it depends on what you're trying to do. So if you want to create a video of a talking head, say 15 seconds of video staring directly at the camera and you want to simply change the words or map a face on, that's relatively easy. I mean, you can do that and that technology is more or less open source and you can download that and run it. What if I want to do something, I'll give you the example. What if you want to show someone you don't like killing another person, stabbing someone to death? Yeah. 
Um, so right now that's very hard because most of the deep fake video is from the neck up. Um, we are manipulating what somebody is saying and their facial expressions. So think talking heads on television, politicians. Now, to do this, you could certainly do the following. You could fully reenact the scene that you want to put somebody into. So get a bunch of actors, studio, film that whole scene, and then do a so-called face swap deep fake. But now you're getting into a, a very, very high threshold, right? A very but, some, high but the movies do it all the time. There, there are people... The movies do it all the time, but with budgets of millions of dollars, right? Millions and millions of dollars. But so, for the ordinary sure. person, if you want to frame someone for a homicide... With Not video yet. proof, that's really hard. Yeah, that's really hard. Now, on the other hand, and this is why we worry more about the political realm, is if I want to put uh, 10 seconds of audio into a candidate or a president's mouth, that's relatively easy to do, or a CEO's mouth. And the only exception to the, what I'm saying is in the non-consensual porn, that's pretty common because all of that material already exists. You simply download sexually explicit material and you map a woman's face into it. And there's also a different um, goal there. The goal is not to convince you that a famous actress or somebody that you don't like is actually in there. It's really more of a bullying and a terrorizing. Whereas if you're trying to create digital evidence to put somebody in jail, that's a different threshold. And that we're not there yet, but... Look, but it seems the easier thing to do, based on what you're saying, going back to my framing for a homicide example, is you might be able to get someone to look like they've confessed to the crime. Yes, that's more likely to happen, right? Somebody saying, oh, I can't believe I did that. Five seconds of video, done. Yeah, and somebody says, right, so somebody says that I came across this person who's my friend or my adversary or whatever, and takes an iPhone video, and it looks like that person has confessed, and you give that to the police. That's a much more realistic concern. That's exactly right. It's absolutely realistic today. Now imagine we go into the court knowing what we know. I'm going to come back to the plausible deniability question. And defendants can say, well, that video evidence of me is fake. Uh, the police faked it. My friend faked it. The CCTV is fake. And where is the jury now? Where, where is the courts? And when they you know, read about deep fakes and know that things be, can be manipulated, how do we come to grips with authenticating content for everything from national security to dealing with campaign, um, uh, political campaigns to the courts? Let's take an easier example. Let's say on the confession example, which I'm hung up on, you don't have video. And you have a person who says, you know, I got the guy to confess. And this, you see this scenario play out in novels and movies all the time. And you have the person's voice. If you just have to do voice, and you try to get Preet Bharara confessing that he was responsible for some homicide that took place, that's not that hard, right? And I'm going to play you an example. We're going to do a little test in a moment. But how hard is that to do? So here's some bad news for you, Preet. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, as somebody who has recorded a lot of podcasts, have a lot of exposure. Because I've said a lot of words. you said a lot of words. So I can download all those podcasts, and I could train a uh, deep neural network to synthesize speech in your voice. It's so-called text-to-speech. So I have it listened to hours and hours and hours of you, and then I type out the computer, and it will synthesize audio in your voice. So it's, just to be clear, it is not doing what I sometimes see Jimmy Fallon do, taking words that I've actually said and no. editing them together. You're talking no, about a, a no. pure synthesis. Full synthesis from the ground up. It's not take this word from this podcast and this word and then splice them together, because that never sounds that good, by the way. Although one of your other vulnerabilities is that all your podcasts are recorded, very high quality, studio setting, no background noise. And so, but, but this is full on synthesis. I don't need you to have said exactly that word because what it learns is so-called phonemes, right? The, the building blocks of the words. And then I can get you to say those words entirely at, at my discretion. Can we try this experiment? Sure. There's a guy named Joe Rogan. 
I think he does some kind of podcast or something. I don't know. Sure, I've heard uh, of him. <laughs> and, and we have two clips. And it is my understanding that one clip is taken actually from Joe Rogan, from the podcast, I believe. And the other is a result of this audio manipulation, totally fake. Good. Okay, you're the expert. So we're going to play them both. They're very short. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have the listeners sort of think to themselves what they think is the true one, which one is the false one. And they're going to come back and ask the professor. So can we, can we play clip one? Fantastic old world craftsmanship that you just don't see anymore. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Okay, that's clip one. Here's clip two. What was the person thinking when they discovered cow's milk was fine for human consumption? And why did they do it in the first place? Okay, so before you answer, Professor, mm-hmm. let's have everyone who's listening. And I'm, I'm betting a lot of people are familiar with Joe Rogan's voice. And mm-hmm. those two sounded very similar to me, even if you're not familiar with his voice. Before you say what you think, do, do you have any basis? Do you have any ability that's greater than the average person to judge which one of those is fake no, and which is false? Absolutely not. Without absolutely using not. equipment? Yeah, without using equipment, I mean, honestly, and this is really what's a little terrifying is because we have so much experience with audio and video and images, we're very comfortable with it and we think we're pretty good at it. But the truth is, is that we're not that good at it. So which, and, which, one, and was, without, which one was the fake right. one? Um, I don't know. I, I would say this is close to a coin flip. Uh, first of all, the synthetic Joe Rogan voices were really were a game changer for me when this came out because that was really the first example of, wow, we really can do this now. So I think number two is the fake one, but it's Based I, on what? not... Well, why did, why um, would you guess that? The, the cadence of his voice seemed a little bit faster um, than what I'm used to hearing. 
but I'm I'm not entirely positive that that's true. I would well, I certainly this wouldn't is why, bet a lot this of money This is why on you it. have the academic uh, accolades that you have. Clip number two was the fake one. Let's play it one more time so people can hear it again. What was the person thinking when they discovered cow's milk was fine for human consumption? And why did they do it in the first place? So now if you were actually, if, if it mattered that you got this right, mm. what would be the way that you would determine with equipment and methodology that it was the fake one? So we have a couple of techniques for audio, and they're not honestly as well developed as for the video. So one of them is that we've discovered, and I don't think this will surprise people, is that when you synthesize something in a computer in a very sort of distilled uh, environment, there's no noise, there's no imperfections, there's no microphone variation, the statistics of the sound are different, just fundamentally slightly different. And so we have these techniques that can look at these very complex statistical properties of the signals and tell whether they are consistent with a person talking, going through a microphone, being recorded, and maybe being compressed, as opposed to being whole cloth synthesized on a computer. So that's one technique that we've developed. The next technique we're developing is a biometric technique where we actually look at at something very similar to what I said, which is the cadence of the speech. So both of those are very, very good. They sound like Joe Rogan, and if you just played a fraction of a second of a clip, nobody would be able to tell. But when we talk, it's not just the sound of our voice, how deep or how high it is, but it's, it's how we end sentences. It's the cadence of our speech. It's how we pause on certain words that, are, that can be somewhat distinct. And with people like Joe Rogan, who have you know, this phenomenal volume of podcasts that you can draw from, you can build very complex statistical models of his speech patterns. Does he use certain words more than other words? What order does he use the words? In the same way we do author attribution. But that would be, that would be probabilistic, right? That wouldn't be definitive. It would. In fact, everything we do is probabilistic. There is no certainty in this game of forensics. And then you're entering into a world of of battle of the experts in the same way you do with blood splatter and anything else in a courtroom. That's exactly right. And this is where things get very complicated is that it is rare that you can say 100% certainty, I will swear on my life that this is real or this is fake. That has almost never, ever happened in my experience. With respect to the second technique and trying to figure out the accuracy of the of a voice clip, if it's Joe Rogan, I guess you can do a comparative analysis because, as you said, there's a lot of Joe Rogan out there. But if someone, going back to my homicide example, if you're trying to frame somebody as a private citizen who doesn't have a lot of that, would you be able to use the second technique on that person? That's the right question to ask, and the answer is no. So we are, this is true for both the audio and the video work that we do, is we typically require, in some cases, hours of video and audio recording of the individual so we can build models of how they sound, how they move their face expressions, how they move their head, and that is very good for CEOs, political candidates, people who have a big footprint um, online, but not so much for some random person who's arrested and charged with murder. So that's one of the challenges that we are facing, and we're sort of working from where we see the major threats. And, And please understand, I'm not saying it's not a major threat that somebody's falsely accused, but we are looking at things like threats to democracy, threats to the stability of the stock market. And the hope is that as we get better and better at this, we can start to protect more and more and detect more and more of these types of deep fakes. And what about visual? You have different techniques to detect whether something that's in a video or a photograph is fake or real. So let's talk about video for a second, and we'll come back to the images. So with video, we take fairly similar approaches. So one of my favorite techniques, I'll I'll describe two of them, 
is that we look uh, typically at a couple of hours of uh, video recording of, say, President Obama. And what we notice is that he has these really interesting uh, behavioral tics or mannerisms. So, for example, with President Obama, when he delivers bad news or when he's sad, he tends to frown, the sides of his mouth go down a little bit, and he tilts his head forward ever so slightly, like as if almost looking downward. When he started almost every single one of his uh, weekly addresses that he would record, he would say, hi, everybody, and he would tilt his head up and to the right. And it was just almost like this tick that he had. And so what we do is we look at hours of video of President Obama, President Trump, Senator Warren, Senator Sanders, so on and so forth, and we learn these mannerisms. Um, we learn these behavioral mannerisms that, that uh, unfold over not just fractions of seconds, but seconds, like 10-second clips is typically what we look at. And then we build, if you will, a biometric. And then when videos come in, because if you think about the nature of a deep, like what we call a face swap deep fake, where you replace one person's face with another fundamentally, the person you're looking at is not who it purports to be. And so the way they move, their facial expressions, their head movements are simply inconsistent, as good as impersonators they are, with the person that they are trying to imitate. And so that's one of the techniques we have. And the other one that I'll mention very briefly is there's another type of deepfake called a lip sync deepfake, where you just take the person talking and you're now going to synthesize a new audio recording from them, for example, using the technology that we just heard with the Joe Rogan. And then I'm going to synthesize their mouth to be consistent with that audio recording, right? So literally putting words into their mouths. And one of the things that we've noticed is that the shape of the mouth, although it looks really good when you watch the video at 30 frames a second, is not exactly physically correct. And my favorite example of this, and your listeners can do this, try to say a word that starts with M. B or P, so mother, brother, parent. So when I'm doing it, and if you want to look in the mirror, you'll notice that your mouth has to completely close. So on mother, my lips have to close. And if they don't, I can't quite form that phony mother. Unless you're a ventriloquist. Unless you're a ventriloquist. <laughs> can so talk ventriloquists about are a huge threat to me. Okay, fine. I can deal with that. All right, I'm sorry. I'll be quiet now. Good. No, no, no. I was thinking the same thing, by the way, Preet, so it's fine. <laughs> um, so what we notice in the lip sync deep fakes is they don't always get it right. The mouth doesn't always form the correct shape for different phonemes. My other favorite one is favor and victor whether your lower lip kicks in a little bit and your teeth come down. And so the mapping of what we call visemes, the shape of your mouth, to phonemes, the sounds that you make, are not always perfectly preserved in the creation of these fakes. Well, at least for now. And so that's the second technique that we have to go after these types of uh, deep fakes. These also probabilistic, not definitive. Mm -hmm. Or can they be? Absolutely. Well, look, I mean, nothing is really definitive, but... So the way I think about this is we don't have one or two uh, tests that we do. We have dozens and dozens of them. And so if I can run dozens and dozens of tests and I have a hit on not one, not two, not three, but five of them, that there are these inconsistencies, then I think we can say with a reasonable degree of certainty that this is not fake. Now, if all of them pass, that's sort of an interesting question because when you find these inconsistencies, you can usually say something reasonably definitively. But when you don't find inconsistencies, you're left with one of two options. It's real or it is a fake made by somebody who's smarter than me. And I can't separate those two things out. So authenticating in some ways is harder than debunking. The other problem is we've been talking a little bit, because I keep using the example of the homicide, of the ultimate test of the fake to be in a court of law where you will have experts and rules of evidence and a judge ruling. 
Whereas probably the most likely use of this kind of thing is not going to be to frame someone for a homicide. It's going to be in general political discourse or to destroy people's reputations about which there's never going to be an adjudication. And I, all that matters absolutely yeah, right. and all that matters is do people in the public want to believe the thing that they saw or they heard? Yeah. And who the hell is Professor, you know, Hani Farid to say otherwise? That's and, right. And even, you know, listening to what you're saying now, it's very complicated. And it all just becomes a bunch of jargon and people saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears these things. And so there's not going to be a final disposition of the issue in a lot of contexts, right? I think you're absolutely right, is that at the end of the day, adjudicating these things in the court of public opinion is incredibly difficult. And who am I? I'm the guy who's part of the conspiracy to, you know, kill President Kennedy. So who are you going to believe, right? So it's, you know, these things get are very complicated, and it's particularly complicated and messy when we come into this with our preconceived notions. So I'll give you an example of this. When the the fake uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi made the rounds of her purportedly drunk and the video was just slowed down, this was an easy case because we can go back to C-SPAN and we can look at the original video and you could see it was slowed down. There was no debate. This was a 100% case, okay? So I, I just came off saying we almost never say this. This was incredibly easy because the original video was there, game over, no more conversation. Four news cycles, over four days, we were debating this in the media. I still get hate mail from people saying, <laughs> you have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm like, dude, why are you covering up for, for drunk Why am I having this conversation still? This could happen to me. Somebody tweeted last week that they were listening to my podcast on 0.5 speed. And mm. they, they paid me the compliment of saying I sounded like a very coherent drunk. <laughs> and then I listened to it myself at 0.5. And I don't know if you want to try this at home, folks. I don't know how coherent I sound, but I definitely sound dead drunk. <laughs> you can yeah. put that yeah. out. No, it's, this was the brilliance of slowing down that video and how effective it was at making her sound drunk. It was really well done. Photos. Let's do photos quickly. Yeah, good. You have good. a couple of techniques that I was reading about and I find fascinating to figure out whether or not a manipulated image of, say, two people together, because that's something that there might be some incentive to, for people to show that person A and person B knew each other and were involved with each other. What are some techniques you use there to determine fakery? So that is probably one of the most common type of manipulation where you want to damage somebody's reputation. And people did this to President Obama, um, you know, for eight years, putting him next to other people because they wanted to say that he was involved in some nefarious uh, things. Some of my favorite techniques for that are have to do with lighting and shadows. If you imagine two people being photographed in different rooms or one outdoors and one indoors, then the light that illuminates them is going to be different. And we have these really nice techniques that can estimate what the surrounding lighting environment was like for different people in an image and then determine if those are consistent or not with a single scene. My other favorite example of that, and, and this doesn't work in all cases, but when it does, it's very nice, is that if you are being photographed and there is a light in front of you, there will be a reflection of that light in your eye. It's called a specularity, those little white dots. So you'll really see this very common when, when you're taking a flash photograph. There's a white dot in your eye. And the, the location and the shape and the color of those tell you something about the surrounding lighting. And if those are inconsistent with two people standing right next to each other, well, then you have a little bit of a problem. And that's actually pretty, I don't want to use the word definitive again, but it, that's pretty good. 
It's pretty good. I'll give you a couple of examples where you have to be very careful is that if, if two people standing next to each other have very complex staged lighting where you've, you've had this very narrow lighting focusing on two people in very specific ways, it could look like an inconsistency. But again, you know, when we do this, we don't, again, we don't look at one or two or three things. We find lots of inconsistencies and they together will combine to be able to say something reasonably definitive. Right. Okay. So let's talk about how we solve all this. You have noted, as have others, there's very little regulation here. Laws don't keep up with technology. It's something that I often say when we're talking about the cyber threat or AI and other things. And I mean no disparagement to any particular member of Congress, but they're not so tech savvy. Some of them are, but most of them aren't. Some of them have never sent an email. And so I don't know how up to the task they are. Should any of the things we've been talking about in this conversation be straight up outlawed? Let's start by saying there's tension here. There's tension between First Amendment, freedom of speech, and safety, security, and protecting people. And that tension is, of course, sort of what underlies all this. There's another tension, which is that the core business model of Facebook and YouTube and Twitter is engagement, is to drive users to their service, to keep them on there for as long as humanly possible, to have them provide data, and then to deliver ads to them. That's the economic tension here. So... I think in my mind, there's no doubt we have to regulate, but we have to regulate lightly and gently and thoughtfully and try to avoid unintended consequences. So let oh, me give luck, you a couple luck of with thoughts. That. Good luck with that, good exactly. Lightly. You know, I remember working in the Senate, and we did a lot of <laughs> regulating lightly and gently. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, I am still spectacularly naive, um, uh, despite decades of, of evidence to the contrary. So, so give us an example of, of the Professor Fareed Law. So right now, what you should know is that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is the law of the land in the technology sector, which says that technology platforms, and that word is very important, are not liable for what their users do on their services. So if you're a Facebook of the world and somebody commits a crime and records that and puts it on their on Facebook, you're not responsible. If somebody tells somebody to go commit a crime, you're not responsible. If somebody posts a bomb-making video and somebody goes off and makes a bomb and kills somebody, you're not responsible. If somebody creates a non-consensual pornography to destroy a woman's reputation and posts it on Facebook and Facebook promotes it to you, they are not responsible. This is the gift of the gods to the technology sector, and it is, in my opinion, where all the power is. Because if we had the ability in limited cases to sue the Facebooks and the YouTubes and the Googles and the Twitters of the world for really outright malfeasance, well, then we would have a very different technology landscape. And so the conversation that we are having on Capitol Hill at the Senate and on the House side is how do we rewrite clauses of the Section of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to say that this liability protection is a right, not a privilege? That if you knowingly allowed for bad behavior on your platform, for example, knowingly trafficking in young children, knowingly and allowing child sexual abuse material in your service, you don't get the protection of the court. You are going to be held liable in criminal and civil court. But knowingly is where the whole game is Knowingly played. is the hard part, exactly. And what's reasonable. And so the language that is being discussed is that there's a reasonable duty of care. And this is language that's also being used in the UK and in Brussels, which frankly are much more ahead of us in thinking about regulating tech. We saw GDPR come out a few years ago on the privacy side. So in many ways, I think the Western Europeans are leading on this front and we are playing catch up. But I do think that it's coming. Uh, I testified before Congress a few months back on 230. There have been many, many conversations since then 
I think regulation is coming. There's a few concerns I have. One is if we start regulating in this climate now with virtual monopolies of Google, Facebook, Twitter, and, and YouTube, well, then we are going to stifle innovation because the little guys coming up are going to have a hard time competing in a regulatory landscape that the big guys didn't have to. So we have to figure out how to create carve-outs. And we have to figure out how to regulate just enough to get the companies to be more responsible without becoming overburdensome and overreacting and stifling an open and free exchange of ideas and stifling innovation. And that, that's a delicate balance. Now, you are working with Facebook at the, at the moment, correct? Um, I have a grant from Facebook to help them contend with their uh, missing disinformation problem that they're having on their services. Yeah. And how's that going? It's, you know, so here's, here's my view. Um, is that for a long time what we heard from Facebook and from Google and from everybody else is there's no problem. There's no problem. We don't know what you're talking about. It's fine. And then we heard, well, there's a little bit of a problem, but it's not as big as you think it is. And then we eventually heard, okay, there's really big problems, but they're so big we don't know what to do about it. But in some ways this is good news (laughs) because at least we are now admitting that we have a problem. And so then the question is, how do you start solving those problems, particularly when we have been negligent in addressing them for 10, 15 years, and we have grown to a scale of billions of users, global uh, services, and we don't have the culture of regulating. Yeah, and you have the most powerful companies on earth, led by some of the richest people on earth. And you said a couple of things that I think are, are very sobering. One is, with respect to these, you know, near monopolistic platforms, you've said you can't have it both ways. It's incredibly disingenuous for Facebook and Twitter and Google to say, we respect our users' privacy when their entire business model is violating our privacy. And then you've also said, quote, the problem I have with the tech companies is whenever they want to do something unpopular that's in their financial interest, they hide behind their terms of service. But when they don't want to do something, say screen for extremist content, they hide behind the First Amendment. So there's a lot of hypocrisy here. Yeah, let me give you a really good example of that latter one that I think is important for people to understand. So what you will hear from this, from these big companies is First Amendment free speech. So first of all, the First Amendment doesn't protect you um, from Facebook or Google or YouTube. It protects you from the government. It was designed to say that you can say things that are unpopular and you will not get arrested and thrown in jail and killed. So this is not a First Amendment issue. And I will remind people, by the way, that on Facebook and on YouTube, they routinely ban adult pornography perfectly protected speech. And they have no problem doing that, even though it violates your First Amendment right. So why do they do it? They do it because it's bad for business, because they know that advertisers don't want their ads running against sexually explicit content. So they have no problem taking down huge amounts of protected speech when it's in their financial interest. But then when you go to them and say, guys, there are images and videos of eight-year-olds and four-year-olds and two-year-olds and one-year-olds being sexually assaulted on your service, they're like, not our business. We, we respect the privacy of our, of our customers. And you can't have it both ways. I stand by that quote. And I think it is incredibly disingenuous. And, and the core tension here is that you have to understand is that the business model of social media is engagement. It is user-generated content that they are going to monetize. And that runs at odds with the issues that we are talking about, mis- and disinformation, child abuse, terrorism, illegal drugs, Ill- illegal weapons, sex trade, and so on and so forth. And so once they open the gates of saying, well, we actually can remove this material, then they are going to be responsible. 
And I'll also remind you, by the way, that YouTube is very good at taking down copyright infringement material. And you know this if you've gone <laughs> right. to YouTube and tried to watch a John Oliver clip. And why? Well, because the government said that you can be sued for hosting copyright material because the lobby for the music and movie industry is far more powerful than the lobby that protects children around the world. Right. And so we have mechanisms that are proven to be able to contend with this. The problem is it's simply not in their interest. Putting aside the huge platforms, and I get that point, and that's the easiest way in some ways, that's the intersection where they're posting things and people are consuming them. But on the laptops of the people who are creating some of this fake stuff, what should be the legal repercussions for them? So for example, I don't even know the answer to this question. Yeah, I don't either. Is putting Scarlett Johansson's face realistically upon a pornographic actress, is that unlawful? And, and if not, should it be? Right. So let's. this is one of the easier ones. Let's do this one, and then we'll get into the political realm in a second. I think you can have a debate about this. I'll tell you where I come down on it. I think it should be illegal. I think the threat to the individual far outweighs any First Amendment free expression. It just outweighs it for me, but we should have the debate. But I will tell you that there are several states, including California, that have banned it. But there's a, a little bit of a catch there, which is that they ban it if the intent was malicious. And so there's this funny wording in the legislation that makes it, it makes it, it's not clear to me that you can actually litigate these things because you have to show intent. And that, of course, is impossible. Let's make it an easier question. Let's make it not a celebrity. There's this issue that lots of DA's offices are grappling with, you know, quote unquote, revenge porn. Yeah, right. And, and I guess that would meet the standard of maliciousness. Right, exactly. But if you take some non-public figure and use their likeness for some purpose because you have deep fake technology at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, you, you think there should be a serious look at making all those things illegal. I think there shouldn't. You might be able to make a case as the law carves out for public figures that they are different than the average citizen. And for the average citizen, we will have a different adjudication of these issues. You still want Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert to do funny things at night. Absolutely. We want satire. We want (laughs) comedy. But that's not necessarily true of of the reporter who is reporting on Me Too or something that is unpopular or somebody who simply attracts attention, unwanted attention. So I think that we should have a serious debate about it. We should look at the pro and the cons, and we should make a decision as a society. I'll tell you what, I, where I fall down is that I think it crosses a line. And I can tell you, having talked to women who have been the victims of this, it is a very real threat to them. It is life-altering and, in many cases, devastating material. But let's have the debate. I'm, I'm open for that. Now, in the political realm, things get much more complicated, of course, right? Because political speech, we want satire. We want to be able to make fun of and criticize and have satirical coverage of our politicians. But we also recognize that if you release a video 24 hours before an election, that is not satire. It is not comedy. It is intended to fool people. It is, by definition, fraudulent. That's very different. And so how do we define these things? And where the tension now is in the regulatory realm, both at the state and the federal level, at least with the people I've been talking about, is how do you define harmful content in the political realm? And that I don't have good answers to, and I don't think anybody does. And I think that's what we have to start thinking about. You've done a lot of work in this area. You have an academic and a tech background, and you also work in the real world. Why are you so fascinated by this? What drew you into this? You know, I was originally drawn into this way before um, I should have been, which was in uh, 1999. So this is in the very early days of the digital revolution. And what drew me in was in the very early days seeing how digital technology was evolving and how it was getting easier and easier to manipulate digital media. And it's not that I could foresee the future, but we all knew it was coming. We all knew that the digital revolution was here. And I started thinking about is what happens when we enter a world where everything's digital, 
everything is malleable and I can manipulate reality. And I was primarily interested in how this would be managed in the courts. That's the thing I really worried about, back to your example. I don't think I could have predicted that 20 years later, we would be talking about existential threats to our democracy and society. Well, here we are. <laughs> and so, yeah, but here we are. And I, and I don't think that that's an exaggeration. I think that if we can't believe what we hear and see and read online, we have a real problem um, with our democracy and our society and being able to in- interact in a civilized way. And so I continue to be very interested in the underlying science and technology, but I'm, I'm growing more and more concerned about the real implications of a world where anything can be manipulated and that means everything can be fake or, or nothing is real. And where are we going to be as a society then? And I don't know the answer to that, honestly. Professor Freed, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really great helpful here, and, and informative and also entertaining. Very good to talk to you. Thank, thank you, sir. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the Stay Tuned bonus with Hani Farid and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other exclusive content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. So as you know, there's so much significant news going on in the country and in the world, it's hard to keep up. There's a gathering storm of the coronavirus. There were the actual tornadoes in Tennessee that killed, I think, up to two dozen Americans. And then, of course, there's all the drama surrounding the election, peaking with Super Tuesday yesterday. But I want to end the show this week, instead of talking about any of those things, to just mark the passing of a significant person who many of you have heard of, but many of you may not have. And it's a gentleman by the name of James Lipton, who died on Monday at age 93 from bladder cancer. James Lipton was a lot of things. He worked as a scriptwriter, an author, an actor. According to his obituary, he also had a stint working as a pimp in France. Colorful stuff. But what James Lipton was most known for, and the reason I knew him and admired him, was he had a television talk show that was very particular in its focus. And maybe you've seen it. It was called Inside the Actor's Studio. And on that show, he would interview actors who would talk about their craft. And there wasn't a great that I think he didn't have the chance to interview. And these were not short interviews. This was not Access Hollywood. This was not Entertainment Tonight. These were lengthy, in-depth, thoughtful, thought-provoking interviews with the most significant and talented acting legends of our time. There was no pomp or circumstance. The camera setup was simple. He sat with his guests at a table and a stage with no fanfare. And they talked. I mean, it was a little bit like the modern podcast. To give you an idea of how seriously Lipton took every interview, it's reported that each interview went for four or five hours, and then it was edited down to one hour for television. It's a far cry from the quick two to three minute red carpet interviews you see before the Oscars and the way that we come to know the folks we see on the big screen and on the small screen. And there's something about that attention, that affection for the material, that desire to get at the craft of these people who we often read about only in the gossip pages that I think was so compelling. I used to watch the show like a religion. And so probably in some way that I don't fully appreciate and never fully thought about until reading of his passing, it probably affected how I decided to do this show. For every guest who appeared on Inside the Actor's Studio, James Lipton prepared for two weeks, watching all their films, including the ones they may have made in high school, and digging out obscure and unknown facts about their lives. As the New York Times wrote this week, quote, it is in an age that often seems to disdain content 
a show about ideas. Here's how Lipton himself described his show. He said, it is not journalism. It is meant as an antidote to what is normally done with these people. I want to create an environment where people are willing to talk about the craft, not about themselves as people, but as artists. And that left, I think, a lasting impression for all of us who watched Lipton, show after show after show. He got people like Dave Chappelle, Robin Williams, Ben Kingsley, Jack Lemmon, and others to open up in ways they had never done before. And a hallmark of the show that I found especially interesting, he would conclude every interview with a series of questions that he borrowed from the French talk show host, Bernard Pivot. I had never heard of that guy, but every week I would hear James Lipton say, and now for the questions from Bernard Pivot. What is your favorite curse word? What is the profession you wouldn't have wanted to practice? And if God exists, what would you like to hear him say after your death? Don't worry, I'm not going to answer them. But there was an occasion where James Lipton appeared on Bernard Pivot's show, and he gave his answers. Question, what is your favorite curse word? Answer, Jesus Christ. Question, what is the profession you wouldn't have wanted to practice? Answer, executioner. Question, if God exists, what would you like to hear him say after your death? Answer, you see, Jim, you were wrong. I exist, but you may come in anyway. Lipton was an interesting character. He cut an interesting figure on the show, interviewing folks. He was a subject of parodies. He had the honor and privilege, I'm sure, of being parodied by none other than Will Ferrell on SNL. But he always seemed to maintain a good sense of humor about it, not take himself too seriously. Sometimes we don't fully appreciate the influence that somebody has had on us until we reflect on their passing. James Lipton, rest in peace. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Professor Hani Farid. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Calvin Lord, Sam Ozer-Staten, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned.